facing the restart of repayment, but we're also facing wages that have not kept up with the cost of living. Interest is once again accumulating on student loans. What comes next? For Sunday, September 3rd, it's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. It's said the system is fundamentally flawed. The amount of money that's being allocated doesn't line up with the expenses schools have. How Pennsylvania's school funding setup leads to gaps in school quality and the court ruling that may force state lawmakers to change it. Plus, we'll check in on the torrential rains that have turned Burning Man into a muddy mess. And in this week's Enlighten Me... I was comforted to know how many other people are sort of walking this walk that I'm going through right now. I ask Rachel Martin what she's learned so far, and we look back at some of the most memorable interviews. First, news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. At least one person has died. Thousands are still stranded after flooding inundated campsites at the Counterculture Burning Man Festival in Black Rock City in the Nevada desert. Authorities say storms swept the area Friday and left a mud pit behind. The remote area was hit by more than a half inch of rain in 24 hours, which fell on dry desert, uh, desert grounds, making a thick mud. John Aslin is with the Bureau of Land Management. He says people can now leave the area. We have seen a uh, pretty steady stream of vehicles coming out and down the road, so that means they're leaving the playa. And then also people uh, uh, walking to uh, uh, out to the the, uh, the road and catching rides. Several people reportedly hiked out through the mud, many with plastic bags on their feet. Forecasters say there is a chance of scattered showers in the area today. Recovery efforts are expected to be extensive in parts of Florida hit by Hurricane Idalia. Regan McCarthy of member station WFSU reports from the small fishing village of Stenhatchee, where the hurricane made landfall last week. For at least the next two weeks, volunteers will be sleeping in the Steenhatchee Baptist Church Gymnasium. Pastor Paul Nallen says many of the community members' homes were damaged, some even destroyed. We got some coming Monday with a shower house they're going put behind the property here and another cookhouse and and so it's really amazing to me how many people respond. The church is taking donations to help purchase items like cleaning supplies, sheetrock and tools. Nallen says many of the community members don't have property insurance. Covering the cost of recovery out of pocket could be near impossible for some. For NPR News, I'm Regan McCarthy in Steenhatchee. Turkey's president meets with his Russian counterpart in the Russian city of Sochi tomorrow for talks that are aimed at restoring the Black Sea grain deal. NPR's Peter Kenyon reports Moscow has complained that it hasn't seen the benefits it expected from that agreement. The grain deal brokered by the United Nations and Turkey allowed some 33 million metric tons of Ukrainian grain to be shipped to parts of Asia, Africa and the Middle East without interference from Russia. But Russia pulled out of the agreement in July, complaining that obstacles to its own exports had not been removed. Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan has maintained ties with Putin during the Russian invasion of Ukraine, and Turkey has not been part of Western sanctions against Moscow. The UN has outlined a series of proposals aimed at improving Russian exports. Turkey's foreign minister says Ankara intends to, quote, try to better understand Russia's position and requests and to meet them. Peter Kenyon, NPR News, Istanbul. Wall Street will be closed tomorrow in observance of the Labor Day holiday. On Friday, the three major indices ended in mixed territory. You're listening to NPR News. 
This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Public health officials will be watching COVID numbers closely as more students return to school this week. WBUR's Priyanka Dale McCluskey says COVID cases and hospitalizations have been rising for several weeks. The late summer COVID bump doesn't appear to be over just yet, but State Public Health Commissioner Dr. Robbie Goldstein says Massachusetts is well positioned to manage it. We're actually much lower than we've seen in Massachusetts at least last year or the year before at this time. So I do feel better about where we're starting from. I also think that we're just more prepared and we have more knowledge now than we had a year ago or two years ago, and that that puts us in a much better place. Rapid COVID tests are no longer free for most people, but some communities, including Boston, are distributing free tests. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Priyanka Dayal-McCluskey. Boston's annual Labor Day breakfast will be held tomorrow morning, and following the event, participants will march to Downtown Crossing for a rally to support the striking writers, actors, and entertainment industry workers. Darlene Lombos is the executive secretary-treasurer of the Greater Boston Labor Council. She says unions in Massachusetts are strong and growing, supported by younger workers. We see an upsurge of organizing. Workers themselves, even without a union, are going out into the streets and trying to find a union and build their own. It's pretty incredible. The state's top Democratic political leaders plan to attend the breakfast and the rally. The Worcester Art Museum is returning to the country of Turkey, a centuries-old bronze bust where it was likely stolen. The museum purchased it in 1966, but just recently learned that the bust was improperly imported. The Roman bronze bust dates back to between the years 160 and 180. Sports, the Red Sox leading Kansas City 6-1. They're in the ninth inning now. Partly cloudy skies overnight with lows dropping to the 60s. Sunny mid-80s tomorrow for Labor Day and again on Tuesday. 85 now in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network. So everyone at home can be online even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. From NPR News, it's All Things Considered. I'm Scott Detrow. Very soon, millions of Americans will be doing something they've never done before. I think I have my login information for Mohila. Is that how you pronounce it? I have no idea. They'll be signing into their federal student loan accounts. Let's see. Continue. To make an actual payment. Oh, God. I have so many alerts. (laughs) That's Sophie Hernandez Simeonidis. She's 26 years old. When she graduated from Baylor University in 2020, Then-President Trump had already ordered a pause on federal student loans. It was early in the pandemic, and there were a lot of layoffs and a ton of economic uncertainty. Trump extended that pause in August, and after President Biden took office, he extended it too, again and again. So three and a half years later, Sophie still hasn't made a federal student loan payment. When she checks her balance... I have one for $3,500. It stayed exactly the same. $2,000, $5,500, $32,000 in total. Now the pause is ending. Student loan interest began accruing again on September 1st, and payments will be due starting in October. I know it's so bad, but I do kind of do the, 
ostrich bury my head in the sand about it because it makes me spiral very easily. During the pause, tens of millions of borrowers stopped making federal student loan payments. Some used the extra money each month to pay off other debts. There was a decrease in medical debts in collection. There was increases in credit scores. That's Laura Beamer, who leads higher education finance research with the Jane Family Institute, a nonpartisan left-leaning think tank. She says other borrowers found themselves with room in their budgets for new payments, like home mortgages. Over the past three years, there's been a drastic increase in first-time home buyers. We think that is definitely related to the repayment pause on top of the lowest interest rates. But Bieber worries that after three and a half years, a lot of families have adjusted to a budget without a student loan payment. Plus, many Americans expected Biden's loan forgiveness plan would cut or eliminate their balances until the Supreme Court struck it down. The rug was pulled out from under them this past summer. So it's not exactly a rosy picture for student borrowers. And that's unfortunately going to have ripple effects throughout the economy. In Sophie's case, after graduation, she eventually got a job. And full disclosure, she worked as a temp at NPR until last year. Instead of paying down her federal loans, she focused on her private student loans, which have higher interest rates, less flexibility, and they were not paused. And she made a big dent. But thinking about having to pay back both balances now at the same time, it makes her physically ill. <laughs> like a lot of my income now goes towards student loans, like hundreds of dollars. So thinking about how that would like potentially double is really overwhelming for me. For our cover story today, we will walk through some new programs designed to make the return to loan repayment less overwhelming and walk through what borrowers should be doing right now to make sure they are getting the best deal. For that, I'm joined by NPR education correspondent Corey Turner. Hey. Hey, Scott. And Carolina Rodriguez, who's the director of the Education Debt Consumer Assistance Program in New York, a state-funded nonprofit that helps residents navigate student loan repayment. Hey, Carolina. Hello. I'll start with you. How busy is your office right now? We are extremely busy. I want to say last week was probably the wake-up call. I think a lot of people were now seriously thinking about their student loans. How would you characterize the mood of borrowers right now? They are concerned and stressed. Uh, we have to remember that inflation is real. So not only are we facing the restart of repayment, but we're also facing wages that have not kept up with the cost of living. So there are a lot of situations where there are literally no repayment plan options that the borrower feels that they can afford right at this moment. So as I said, we're going to walk through uh, a lot of the questions that have been coming in and try to help people put together a plan. Uh, Corey, we'll get to some of the more complicated questions shortly, but let's start with the basic one. What if you are someone like Sophie, who we heard from a few moments ago? You have never had to make a payment. Like, where do you start here? You start at the government's website, studentaid.gov. Make sure all your contact information is up to date. If they don't know where you live, email, snail mail address, they cannot find you and bill you. But that won't stop the interest from continuing to grow and grow. Uh, while you're there, you can also figure out who your loan servicer is. And this is really important because two of the biggest servicers in the loan industry actually got out of the business during the pandemic. So millions of borrowers are going to log in and find out they have a new servicer. Once you've done all that, I think really the most important thing borrowers need to figure out is what repayment plan, and there are a bunch of them, is really right for them. And I cannot recommend enough the education department's loan 
simulator. You can type in your income, family size, how much debt you have, and it will really outline for you the different repayment plans, how much interest you'll end up paying over the long run, and also what your monthly payment will look like, you know, starting in October. All right. So now we have a question. Uh, this is from Sophie, who, again, we heard from before uh, in that, that interesting situation of, of never having had to deal with this as, as an adult professional. Right now, I'm a freelance journalist and my income is really all over the place. It's not super consistent. How would any sort of student loan repayment plan affect the way that I repay if I don't have consistent employment? So Carolina, what do you think? Uh, how should she pick a repayment plan here uh, when, when income is inconsistent? Regardless of whether your income is consistent or inconsistent, you should know that usually the federal government for income-driven repayment plans is going to use your last year's tax filing. If your income has decreased significantly, you can always provide updated income information. For a lot of new borrowers that may not have a solid job, I definitely recommend they explore the new SAFE plan. And the key about that plan is not only that they will be able to get an affordable repayment plan option, which could be as low as zero if their income is below 32,000 for a household size of one. But I think the best part is that SAFE will not allow the interest to accrued if their required payment doesn't cover it. So the save plan, Corey, you have reported on this. You've described it as loan forgiveness in slow motion. Uh, explain how all of this works. The way that works, like Carolina mentioned, is especially for low-income borrowers. If you qualify for a $20 or $30 payment or maybe even a $0 payment, not only are you not making payments, the remainder of the interest each month that your payment can't cover is being waived. But this plan also comes with the promise of loan forgiveness. So for undergraduate loans, that forgiveness comes after 20 years. Also kicking in next summer, next July, is a new promise of loan forgiveness for really low dollar borrowers. I think about these folks generally like community college borrowers. If they borrowed less than $12,000 total under the SAVE plan, they can qualify for forgiveness after just 10 years. A lot of people will qualify for forgiveness it will take a while. Again, it is slow motion. This is not the big Biden plan the court struck down. But nevertheless, this is going to help a lot of people. Let's go to another question from a borrower. My name is Steve Kalki and I live in Houston, Texas. And my question is, why does it take so long for my loan servicer to respond or to approve my documents or to really get any answers back to me in a timely manner? Corey, what do you make of that? Ooh, that is a good question. Um, here's the short of it. I reported back in January that the Office of Federal Student Aid, which manages the federal student loan portfolio, it got flat funded. And so it's essentially trying to do something utterly enormous and unprecedented right now, getting more than 40 million borrowers back into repayment. And it's trying to do it with not a dime more of funding than it had last year. And so what you have right now are budget cuts and servicers trying very quickly to staff up and it's just not gonna be pretty. And so my advice to borrowers is do not wait until October 1st, because I assume the closer we get to October 1st, the more time you're gonna spend on hold with your servicer. And I don't see any reason to believe it's gonna get better. Carolina, you, you said at the beginning how much more demand your offices are, are, are seeing come in. Do you think servicers have the staffing they need right now? 
they do not have the staffing and what's another layer of concern is that they are hiring new staff and all that staff is going through training so my experience so far when i call is that they're providing the wrong information but i do want to highlight something that is really important if you're not able to reach your student loan servicer if you're getting wrong information you need to help us hold them accountable and you should be filing a complaint with the fsa ombudsman uh, you can do that online through studentaid.gov and that is just going to help you have a trail of paperwork and get a more timely response to your issue Anything else that you think should be top of mind for somebody who may just be dealing with this for the first time this weekend as, as this kind of sinks in? Don't be alarmed if your first invoice is high, meaning you're being asked to pay an amount that you cannot afford. Borrowers who enter repayment for the first time are placed on the 10-year standard plan. Know that you can, again, go to studentaid.gov and potentially enrolled in the SAFE plan, which, depending on your income, should be more affordable. Corey? So I actually want to mention one thing that won't impact newer borrowers, but could be utterly life-changing for older borrowers. And that is that right now, behind the scenes, the education department is basically going into their payment histories and giving them retroactive credit for big chunks of time that didn't used to count, but now they're going to count it towards loan forgiveness under income-driven repayments rules. And that could be really life-changing. I was just on a Zoom call a couple days ago with a borrower. She logged into her account. She'd been in repayment for 21 years and her loans had disappeared overnight because of all the back credit she got as part of this, what the administration is calling one-time account adjustment. That is NPR education correspondent Corey Turner with us. Thanks, Corey. You're welcome, Scott. And Carolina Rodriguez, who's the director of the Education Debt Consumer Assistance Program. Thank you so much. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. And you're listening to 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks so much for being with us. Partly cloudy skies overnight with temps in the 60s. Labor Day looking good. Sunny mid-80s. More sunshine. Temps again in the 80s on Tuesday. 84 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Arts Thursdays at Harvard and ART. Welcome the renowned 12-foot Syrian puppet Little Amal at Finding Friends in Harvard Yard, September 7th at 6. Coming to City Space on Monday, September 11th, Nia Grace, owner of Boston's hotspot, Grace by Nia. Learn about her Seaport Supper Club and enjoy a taste from the menu right after the show. Tickets at WBUR.org events. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Volante Farms in Needham, reminding you to shop, eat, and drink local this summer. Enjoy homegrown farm-to-table meals to go twice a week. VolanteFarms.com for menus. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Congress returns from its August recess this week, and they'll be facing a long to-do list. Topping the list, the White House wants Congress to quickly pass $16 billion in aid to replenish the FEMA Disaster Relief Fund, which has been strained because of the recent hurricanes and wildfires. Congress also has to deal with the budget process that is coming to a head this month. Social media giant Meta is reportedly considering paid versions of Facebook and Instagram that would have no 
advertising, but this would be for users in the European Union. And at the weekend box office, the third installment of The Equalizer, starring Denzel Washington, took the top spot with an estimated $34 million. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, designed to be an end-to-end hiring solution to help businesses attract, interview, and hire candidates all from one place. Learn more at Indeed.com NPR. From American Jewish World Service, supporting human rights advocates worldwide in the fight for democracy, equity, and justice for all people. Learn more at AJWS.org. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. In Pennsylvania, there has been a years-long battle about how public schools are funded. A lot of the big-picture dynamics are similar to other places. The way that funding is set up often means that predominantly white schools end up with more money than predominantly black or brown schools. Now, earlier this year, a judge in Pennsylvania ruled that the way the state funds its schools is unconstitutional. And the lawsuit, which was brought by school districts, parents, and nonprofits, alleges that the state fails to provide adequate resources to educate kids in poorer districts. Reporter Aubrey Uha spent months reporting the story for WHYY's podcast, Schooled, and joins us now. Hey, Aubrey. Hey, thanks for having me. So let's start with the lawsuit. Uh, What exactly does it say is broken with the funding system? Yeah, I mean, it, it said the system is fundamentally flawed. For starters, the amount of money that's being allocated doesn't line up with the expenses schools have, which wouldn't be such a big problem if all districts had enough local resources to fill that gap. And we just know that that really is not the case. And let's just underscore that here. It's because so many uh, schools are funded by local property taxes. So if you live in a wealthy community, that's great. If you don't live in a wealthy community, your schools don't have the money they need. Exactly. And I think it's it's something that we just kind of accepted about public education, that some schools have enough resources and others don't. But, you know, if you look at state constitutions, it says that all of the schools are supposed to have enough resources. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just it's particularly bad in Pennsylvania because the state does not contribute enough, which puts more of a burden on local districts. Um, and then there are a lot of school districts. Uh, there's 500, which means that local wealth is is really segregated, um, and that lines up with residential segregation. So you just have these these huge inequities that really play out. And that's where we decided to start this season of the podcast, which was by taking listeners into two very different high schools um, that are right next to one another, pretty much, to see how those differences show up. All right, let's listen to some of that reporting again. This is from the podcast Schooled. We're in Delaware County, a densely populated suburb near Philadelphia. We're currently at Penwood High School in Lansdowne, my um, previous high school where I graduated in 2021. Nashari Stewart is 20 years old in her second year of college and home for spring break. And she's offered to show us around Penwood to give us an insider's look. Nashari has good memories of this place. When she was a student, she excelled in her classes, competed in mock trial, and served as a student representative on the district school board. You know, it's been the same building since the day that the high school opened up, so it's not in the best of shape. The building was pretty impressive when it first opened in 1927. Maintaining this once great building has been a challenge since money is always tight. And that's even though the school's district, William Penn, has one of the highest property tax rates in the state. 
there just isn't a lot of wealth to tax here. Property across the majority black school district is worth about $1.5 billion. And that may sound like a lot, but compared to nearby districts, it's minuscule. One has nearly four times as much wealth, another 10 times. Both of those districts are predominantly white. Good to see you too. How are you? How are you doing? I'm good. Yeah, hi, nice to meet you. So, my name is Judy Lee. I'm the principal here. Judy Lee has been the principal at Penwood since 2016. She knows the building and its problems better than anyone. Remember heat? Like, oh, there's no heat, yeah. <laughs> no heat. No heat, yeah. Another issue is overcrowding. The building has been cramped since the district merged three high schools into one in the early 1980s as a result of the Brown versus Board of Education ruling. Although that sign before you enter says, you know, food or drinks prohibited, students have to eat in here because they don't have anywhere else to eat. We're in a small gym where you have to shout to be heard over the air conditioning. The actual cafeteria is too crowded. And even with the gym used for overflow, there still isn't enough room for everyone to eat comfortably. Students share, like, Dr. Lee, I don't want to be in that space. It's too crowded. I'm sorry, I don't have any other space for you. We walk downstairs and can't help but notice a big hole in the wall. How did that happen? What is that? So there was a a situation and um, still basically... um, could not control um, his anger, so he punched it, and then the wall broke. When was that? That was uh, last year. And then there's the library. And you can see that, like, the paneling from the ceiling is, like, coming down. Looks like it's about to fall off. The small windowless room has a water-stained drop ceiling. We're still currently without a librarian, and so in order for students to be here, the teacher needs to, you know, take off from their lunch or their prep period. Uh, to be down here so that students can be supervised while they're in here. Principal Lee points to something on the floor. We also had mice infestation in the building, so you will see that mouse trap. It's an old-fashioned snap trap. We caught like 10 mice in my office and also at the library, so we have been calling exterminator, but that mouse trap is not really working. Principal Lee says over the winter, when the mouse problem was at its worst, staff had to clean mouse droppings off their desks every morning. Because the root cause is the building uh, structure, but we are not able to handle the root cause of the situation. We are only using the band-aids. All of this, the crowding, the crumbling walls, the mice, makes teaching and learning tough. Yeah, one time the mice actually um, just running through the classroom when class was happening, and teacher screamed and stood on the chair and students were screaming and it was just not uh, conducive for our students' education. Nashri says the mice weren't a problem when she was a student. But she remembers lots of times when lessons were interrupted because of facility issues. Like the time they were reading Shakespeare in English class and a pipe in the ceiling burst. Water came gushing down and they had to evacuate the classroom. Those minutes, they amount to a lot of hours eventually. And that can really take a toll on like what you're able to learn and what curriculum is able to get through. And before you know it, you know, you're a little bit behind. And, you know, being behind, especially when other schools around you, like they aren't behind. And, you know, we're all trying to get into the same colleges later on. So Principal Lee knows the facility situation is frustrating for students and teachers. It's frustrating for her, too. But without more money, there isn't much she can do. Our uh, school culture is basically um, unity because 
if we don't work together, we are not going to make it. That sense of unity is why Nashari visits Penwood whenever she can. Growing up here, like I've had to do the best that I can with what I have. I think that translates really well into college when you're in a new environment. And so taking those same skills I sort of had to learn here to, sur- to survive here, I'm now taking to using college to thrive there. And so I think it, you know, it works out. But she knows that going to a school like this can make kids feel like they're being left behind. Forgotten. When your school isn't, you know, in the best of shape, it can make you feel bad about yourself and your own self-esteem. And, and it makes you wonder, like, why, why aren't you worth the necessary funding to have what, what other schools have? How much money do you think your school spends each year? I don't know, maybe a thousand. Five hundred? Probably, like, thirty dollars. Thirty dollars? I don't know. Actually, fifty. Fifty. School funding is not something the average kid knows that much about, let alone how much it costs to run a school. But this issue is certainly on the minds of current students at Penwood High School. Paul, do you want to go first? Yeah, okay. Trinity Giddings and Paul Vandy are seniors. They spend a lot of time together, in the classroom and after school. They even co-host a podcast. The topic? School funding. Hello, everyone. This is Trinity and Paul, and welcome to Pending Funds. Paul is also a representative on the district school board. A lot of times when I was trying to bring up issues, I always went back to, you know, funding, funding, funding. We don't have enough funding for this. We don't have enough funding for that. If I'm always running into the roadblock in our own school, let me kind of get to the heart of it and kind of see what's really going on. So Paul and Trinity started doing their own research. Welcome back to Pending Funds. Today, we're going to be talking about how public schools are funded. A little over $7 billion gets spread out over 500 school districts. They learned that Pennsylvania relies more heavily on local property taxes to fund schools than almost all other states. That's why some schools have so much more money than others, and why their school has so much less. During their freshman year, Paul and Trinity saw that discrepancy firsthand when they went to another school district for a speech and debate competition. They took a 20-minute drive north to one of the state's wealthiest school districts. Lower Marion. I had never seen what Lower Marion looked like. I didn't look it up, really, so I was kind of just walking in blind. You might have heard of it because of its most notable graduate, the late NBA superstar, Kobe Bryant. When they got to the school for their competition, Paul and Trinity could not believe their eyes. There's, like, a cafeteria kind of outside. Like, they could kind of eat, like, outside. There's all these tables. We're like, oh, wow, that's nice. I thought it was like, this, this is a fantasy experience because the ceilings were huge. We go in there, man, their lockers were the size of refrigerators. You could sleep in there. The place was spacious. It looked, like, amazing. It was pristine. It looked like it was updated. i never seen, like, a fully updated school. So it's walking around. Everyone from our school was shocked, actually. Everyone was saying, like, people go to school here? This district has a lower tax rate than William Penn, but still brings in way more money because its property is worth so much more. Drive around the winding leafy roads with beautiful stately mansions, and you'll understand why. As a result, Lower Marion spends $13,000 more per student each year than William Penn. And it isn't just a matter of having extra things, like dance studios and robots. There are also major academic differences between the two districts. Lower Marion touts its liberal arts curriculum with more than 200 courses. Students can earn an international baccalaureate diploma, which is considered by many to be the most rigorous. Penwood offers about a dozen advanced placement courses, 
but there's no fancy diploma and overall class options are far more limited. Later that year, the kids from Lower Marion's speech and debate team visited Penwood. Trinity says there weren't even enough classrooms available. So we were in closets, quite literally. I had a round in a storage closet because there was no more room. Some of the rounds took place in the library, the one with the mousetraps. They had to unlock the library and there were all these dust on the books. And they're like, why is this space unused? And we can't even tell them why. And kids are like laughing and wondering why the school looks like this. And you just have to be quiet and not mention that it's your school. Paul was upset by what the students said. I'm not any different from any you know, other student down the road. But knowing that they get opportunities that I don't, just because, you know, you know how much money their parents have, were things that were out of my control, you know, it hurts you because you just feel like, what, what can I do about this? That was a portion of WHYY's podcast, Schooled, hosted by reporter Aubrey Juhas, who is with me now. And Aubrey, we began the conversation talking about this judicial ruling that the school funding system right now is unconstitutional. What happens next, and does that change anything for this school year? Yeah, so so nothing really changes in an, in an immediate sense. Um, we have this moment in the second episode of the season that I really love where one of the parents involved in the lawsuit describes being at the grocery store when the decision dropped. And she's so excited. She literally says out loud, we won. We won the case. And somebody else in the store says to her, well, how much did you win? And she tells them pretty deadpan, you know, it, it ain't that type of case. And what she means by that is we're not looking at a prescriptive payout like you would for an injury settlement or something like that. What we're looking at is, you know, the the judge having said this system doesn't work, fix it. So now we're in a situation where lawmakers have to do that. And that takes quite a lot of political maneuvering. These are really big changes. Uh, And something that is notable, though, is that the lawmakers here in Pennsylvania are not disputing any of this. Both Democrats and Republicans have decided not to appeal. They're really acknowledging that the system is broken and they have to fix it. What is the specific plan to fix it then? Because this is something that has been an issue in the state house for a really long time, far beyond a decade ago when I was covering these same conversations that didn't lead to any changes. Yeah, I mean, the big difference is that there's this mandate now. Um, One lawmaker who's been working on this for a long time described it as a hammer over lawmakers' heads. So they've reconvened the school funding commission that has existed in the past. They're having a statewide listening tour that starts this month to kind of hear about all of the different issues. And Governor Josh Shapiro has given them a deadline. He said that they have to revise the state's funding formula in time for it to be implemented for the next budget cycle, which starts in July. In terms of an immediate step, the state, after quite a lot of fighting, did approve more spending for education in this year's budget, $700 million, about an 8% increase. And that includes $100 million for the state's poorest school districts. And while that's not enough for advocates to be, you know, super duper excited, it does feel like an initial commitment and a starting place. That is Aubrey Juhas, host of the latest season of WHYY's podcast called Schooled. It was produced by Michaela Winberg and Michael Olcott. Thanks, Aubrey. Thanks for having me. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Knee-deep mud, warnings to conserve food and water, orders to shelter in place. This is all at Burning Man 2023 after torrential rains turned the Black Rock Desert into miles and miles of mud. There are also reports that at least one person has died at the Counterculture Festival about 100 miles north of Reno, Nevada. 
Earlier this afternoon, I caught up with NPR's Claudia Piscuta, who's at her first burn, and she told me it's muddy where she is, but that she and her camp family have been making the best of things. It's pretty wet and muddy out here. And speaking of mud, I probably have about an inch or two of mud on my boots right now. This isn't regular mud. It's this playa dust and it just cakes onto everything and your feet feel like they weigh like 10 pounds each. And <laughs> like my legs are getting sore from walking around with so much mud on my boots. And it makes sense that they're telling everybody not to try and drive through this, this particularly thick mud. That's right. And some people who have four wheel drive vehicles are taking the chance to try to get out today, but from everything I've heard, you know, officially the gates remain closed. So it's kind of like you're taking your chances. And if you get stuck there, you're stuck there. But uh, it does look like most people are just here. And mostly sheltering in place today. Yesterday when we got a break in the rain and things dried up a little bit, mm -hmm. the party very quickly started up again. And I should mention that, that Desert Wi-Fi is doing the best as it can as we talk to you, dropping in and out, but, but we've got you on the line now. You know, you read the official warnings and the official statements about this situation. You see things like shelter in place, conserve food and water. And it sounds kind of scary, but talking to you right now, that's that doesn't really seem like how it feels where you are. It seems like people are taking this in stride. That's exactly right. The warnings do sound very dire. And of course, the organization has to, you know, tell people to take care. And but everyone seems to be helping each other out. And I haven't seen one person who seems worried about it at all. I do want to ask about one serious thing, though. Officials say one person did die. There's no information on the cause or exactly what happened. But uh, what are people saying about that? What do we know? I have to be honest with you. I had not heard about that until you mentioned it to me. Obviously, you've got to be careful moving around the area because it's very easy to fall and hurt yourself in some way. One of our campmates hurt, I think, his ankle. Um, but yeah, I mean, that is unfortunate. I'm sorry to hear that that happened. Um, I mean, mostly what I've seen from my personal experience is just any sort of need that you have, somebody, whether friend or neighbor or stranger will jump in to help you out in some way. And I came more as an observer, like mm -hmm. I was curious to see what this experience would be like. And I've really felt like embraced by the people that I've met here. And I think I might actually consider coming back as wild as this experience has been. Well, that's, that's NPR's Claudia Piscuta, covered and caked in a lot of mud at Burning Man. Thanks for talking to Confirmed. us. Confirmed. <laughs> Stay dry as much as you can. You're welcome. Thank you. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR. Good afternoon. I'm John Carpilio. Thanks so much for being with us. Up next at 6, it's the New Yorker Radio Hour. Turn your old car into new news. Keep the programs you love running by donating your vehicle to WBUR. 
Details at WBUR.org slash cars. Whether you're working tomorrow or not, start the day with 90.9 WBUR. As we mark Labor Day, organized labor still faces big obstacles, but a tight job market is giving workers more bargaining power. The State of Labor, tomorrow morning on WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Huntington Theater, kicking off their thrilling new season with Joshua Harmon's Prayer for the French Republic, opening September 7th. Tickets at HuntingtonTheater.org. And Xfinity Internet with the Xfinity 10G network so everyone at home can be online, even at peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast. The future starts now. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Ukraine's president replaced the country's defense minister. This after more intense fighting today as Russian troops try to retake some of the territory where they've been pushed back by Ukraine's counteroffensive. And two people were injured in a three-and-a-half-hour overnight drone attack in Odessa. South Africa's president says an independent investigation found no evidence that his country supplied arms to Russia. This after the U.S. ambassador made the claim, which the president of South Africa says damaged his country's currency and standing. And scientists are working on a new technique to preserve corals by freezing them and then bringing them back to life. This is officials say abnormally high ocean temperatures recorded this summer pose a big threat to coral reefs. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Raymond James, a firm focused on transforming lives, businesses, and communities through tailored wealth management, banking, and capital market solutions. Learn more at RaymondJames.com. From Carnegie Corporation of New York, supporting innovations in education, democratic engagement, and the advancement of international peace and security. More information is available online at Carnegie.org. And from the sustaining members of this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Scott Detrow. I am joined once again by Rachel Martin for her Enlighten Me series. Hey, Rachel. Hi, Scott. The tables have turned. Ooh. So (laughs) you have been doing this series for about four months now. Yes. And I thought it would be a good point to not listen to you do an interview. (laughs) But to interview you instead uh-huh. about what you have learned and what this series has been like for you so far. Sure. Oh, man. That means I'm, I had to have learned something? Okay, yes. Well, we'll see. We'll see. If you want to just <laughs> run out of the studio right now, it's okay. <laughs> no, no. I can do this. Yeah, let's go for it. Before we get into that, though, can you just remind us what the initial goal of Enlighten Me was? You were you were doing your thing in Morning Edition. <laughs> right. You decided to make a pretty big shift and tackle this this really interesting new series. What was the goal? Yeah. So I I was ready to do something different. You know, I had I'd hosted Morning Edition for the last six years. And before that, I mean, I'd spent decades covering all kinds of things, right? The, the external forces that shape us. So wars and school shootings and politics and economics and and I was craving a different kind of more personal interrogation mm-hmm. frankly I wanted to look at at the internal questions that a lot of us have the big existential stuff and some of that had to do with just where I sit in my life right now right I've got two young kids and I I think about their own spiritual development and and both my parents have passed my dad died recently uh, a year and a half ago and after that, I started looking at my own 
spiritual foundation. My parents were very religious folks. I didn't adopt their spiritual identity, mm-hmm. but I also didn't build one for myself. And so I think especially as a parent, I've, I've been casting about a little right now, thinking about how to how to instill those values, those ethics, how to just navigate life as a good person, maybe with or without that same religious or spiritual underpinning. Did you feel like something was missing or did you think that you just wanted to have a better understanding and conception of what it is that you thought when it came to spirituality? I felt like something was missing. Mm-hmm. And and I think some of that is the community that can come along with a, a, a spiritual life. Um, and And with religious or faith traditions, often there's an immediate... Um, direct way to participate in public service or or be part of your community in a different way. And and sure, after the pandemic, everyone sort of felt untethered in new ways yeah. and everyone was reevaluating all kinds of institutions. And so I think some of it is is my own personal recalibration after that. There have been many moments throughout this series where I've heard you uh, have these really interesting conversations and I wanted to ask you a lot of follow-up questions. There have been times when I wasn't <laughs> when I wasn't host the show when I was like talking back to the radio listening to them and um, Let's do it. So I want to do that right now. Let's listen to a few moments and then uh, I really just want to ask you what you thought about them and, and whether they changed your mind in yeah. any way. Let's start with Sarah Hurwitz. She was talking to you about rediscovering her Judaism and she made this really provocative statement on the idea that's kind of shorthand called the spiritual buffet, talking about uh, why she kind of does not agree with the idea of picking and choosing from different religions and different backgrounds. Ultimately, what makes me a little bit nervous about the spiritual buffet is what you're kind of doing is you're like, oh, I'm going to take this thing from Buddhism that's so me and this thing from Judaism that's so me and this thing from Catholicism. It's just so me. 100 percent. Right? <laughs> no. And this is and right. This is what so many of us do. And at the end of the day, you're kind of just reinforcing you. Mm. You are kind of you're defying yourself. Right. Like you're kind of saying like, OK, Whoa. what you know, it's like what reinforces my my pre-existing beliefs? Yeah. Which is how we consume social media. Right. It's like I want to follow the people who I like and who tell me how great I am. But that's not really the purpose of these great spiritual traditions. So I want to ask mostly about that whoa moment Mm. from you because you're saying, yeah, this is exactly what I'm doing. And then she really just kind of smacks down that entire that entire <laughs> yeah. mindset. First, I will say that in the in the course of this series, that bit of tape, that moment is the thing that most people come and comment about yeah. to me. They're like, "Wow, that when Sarah Hurwitz told you that we needed more accountability and that you can't just pick and choose from a bunch of different faith traditions that really resonated with a lot of people." And and for me especially because that's sort of what I've been doing in my own journey to use Mm -hmm. a completely trite expression, but I have been, you know, visiting different churches or communities or reading different uh, spiritual texts and trying to glean from them things that I can use as building blocks for my own spiritual life to pass down to my kids. And Sarah's like, no, because you are self-selecting out of the hardest parts of those faith traditions, The, the, the rules, edicts, or guidance that is meant to shape your daily personal behavior. That really stuck with me because we need help with that. It, mm-hmm. It's the rare individual that can just set themselves on this like straight and narrow moral compass um, and not falter. Like you need a, a community, I think. I mean, this is my opinion. I think it helps to have a community around you. 
Having said that, I am unresolved on this issue. Did it make you second guess in any way? It did. It gave me pause. Okay. I thought about it a lot, and I am still not going to sign up for a new church, synagogue, or mosque because I... I, I need that kind of personal accountability in my life. I'm, I'm, I'm not sold yet on the idea that I have to fully commit to one spiritual tradition. Yeah. I, maybe it's because I'm a journalist. I, I, <laughs> I'm an omnivore. I want all the things. And, and I still believe that I can build a good life with, with that kind of omnivorous spiritual appetite. So when you're talking about spirituality, mm. I think something that's very present for a lot of people and both a draw and also a kind of scary part of spirituality is the idea of death, yeah. right? Like I think so many people, the most spiritual moments, the most connected, the most the most they think about what they actually believe is when somebody they love dies. Yeah. One of the people you talk to, Hanif Abdurraqib, spoke so deeply about this in a conversation that I remember you you, you saying at the beginning uh, of the segment was not supposed to be about a grief at all. Right. And yet it was all about grief. That was like the only thing you talked about. Yeah. I'm of a belief that one doesn't move past, or at least in my life, I, I don't move past loss. Uh, grief makes a home, I think, within us if we allow it to. I believe that I, I should be a, a generous steward to my grief. If I tend generously to my grief, then it then it treats me well in return. I love that tape. I yeah. love that moment so much because he is acknowledging there that the grief never goes away. Mm -hmm. It becomes part of you and that's not a bad thing. Yeah. It 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 grows in you. It 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 has a home in you and it it's intrinsic to who you are in your life experience and that can be a beautiful thing. You know People hear this all the time, but your most profound grief is an expression of how deeply you loved someone, right? Yeah. And so you don't want that to go away. Can I ask you personally, because this came up with a few different people you talked to, um, have you found personally in moments of loss, have you felt more or less connected to your your spiritual side, whatever you think of spirituality? Oh, definitely more. I yeah. mean, I, we said at the top, a lot of this was provoked by my own, my own loss and... You know, I grew up in a family and with parents who really cultivated a sense of of spiritual mystery, mm -hmm. you know, of of something bigger than ourselves. I've said this before, but my mother, when she was sick and she had cancer, she she worked really hard to instill this story that she was going to live in the wind. Mm -hmm. And it was helpful, you know, and 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 that is very real to me. So I am predisposed in this way. Um, and and I think for me personally, loss and grief and my spiritual life live live together. And that's why that conversation with Hanif Abdurraqib spoke to me so personally. The central question of is there a God? Is there some sort of higher being? I want to play two clips of two people with two very different views of that. One is somebody a lot of listeners know and love. That's Rain Wilson, best known from The Office, great actor, and a really spiritual person. I know there's a God. Um, it's not a faith thing. God is as real to me as as my body is. And then there's Vanessa Zoltan, who you, who you spoke to the last few weeks, who is an atheist chaplain, who is an incredibly spiritual person, 
but also uh, does not believe in God. It's really easy to say to someone, like, it's great that you're suffering in this life because you'll get your just rewards in the next life. I need things to have like good results. On I'm results oriented, Rachel. I want them to have good results on this planet. I'm data driven in my religion. And so no afterlife, which makes like no room for God. That I think even more than the buffet is is mm. the moment of all this that, that jumped out to me. And I think that's also something that I'm really like personally struggling with right because i'm i'm i have a religious upbringing i consider myself a religious person i consider myself somebody who does believe in god but when it comes to the afterlife element of faith in particularly sometimes i just think like are we just all telling ourselves a story to make us all feel better about the scariest thing out there is this just a very convenient thing to believe to be able to get through life get through dying get through the idea that you yourself are going to die that part of it just seems too convenient (laughs) and that's it seems like she's saying that like In that particular moment, people just want to feel better about themselves and she doesn't want to give them that easy out. Yeah, I think Vanessa in particular is interesting because she doesn't see a world in which you can believe in an afterlife and take care of this earth. And I don't know if I can go there. I I, I think you can hold both ideas at the same time. But what she is saying is that she doesn't want people to use religion and she has seen it happen. And there's evidence to this, you know, in certain religious movements, certain segments of white evangelical Christianity, for sure. Um, that is so focused on the afterlife that they dismiss the stuff that's happening on this earth now, the degradation, climate change, especially yeah. as part of God's plan. And so why, we can't we can't stop it. And what's the point? Because mm-hmm. we have grander things happening in the hereafter. So I get what she's saying about that. Um, at the same time, you've got Rain Wilson, who um, who holds both ideas at yeah. the same time. He believes in an afterlife. Rain Wilson also is a very big proponent of of saving the climate. And yeah. he is very um, convinced, though, with every fiber in his being that there is some kind of divine power. Yeah. I'm not in that camp, but wow, was it profound to sit with him as as he expressed that. Yeah. And, and again, who am I to say, oh, you're just using that Rain Wilson as like a way to to alleviate your your own suffering because you believe that it's part of this divine tapestry. Mm-hmm. Who cares? <laughs> like it, we're all just trying to make it through this life the best we can. Yeah. And and if believing in something bigger than you is is a comfort and helps you live a better life and be a better neighbor and be kinder and more generous, then I think that's a good thing. Yeah, I think that's true. I think I deeply agree with both of them, even though they seem to be saying contrasting things in, 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 in different ways. What's been the biggest, what's been the biggest surprise to you throughout this process? I think it's not it's not really a surprise, but I was comforted to know, to have it revealed how many other people are sort of walking this walk that I'm going through right now. Mm-hmm. And, and, and all kinds of people are asking the same questions and, and don't feel at home in in institutional religions that they may have been brought up in and are searching for that kind of spiritual nourishment in some unexpected places. And so that was reassuring to me. Mm-hmm. I, I wasn't out here spinning in the wind by myself, but actually there were a, a lot of other people who 
who are going through the same stuff. And, you know, I think my biggest epiphany seems like such a grandiose word, but I, I think about this conversation that I had with the author Catherine May very early on in the series. And I haven't, I haven't shaken it. There are no answers, and simple answers quickly turn into horrible, generalized strictures on our lives as, as soon as we start taking them in. And the, the learning for us is to sit with mystery and to be able to get comfortable with not knowing and feeling a little lost quite often and going out and looking for spontaneous truths because actually there's very few universal ones. She and I got into this conversation about how you make meaning, right? And and that's the key. We make it. Whether or not we make it in the form of a God we worship at church on Sunday or in a set of rituals that were handed down to us in the Torah and instruct our, our life and how we treat one another, um, in all these different manifestations, we are creating the meaning. And we have the power to do that with anything. I mean, that was sort of mind-blowing to me. And it was echoed by Vanessa Zoltan because she derives meaning from reading Jane Eyre yeah. and secular books. And that feels powerful. Also, I hear Sarah Hurwitz in my head saying, yes, but you're just deifying yourself by picking and choosing. <laughs> but the idea that, again, circling back to the idea of parenting and what I'm giving my kids, it's the ability to see mystery and beauty and joy and, and sacredness in all corners of the world and in all people. And, and I, I think that is a powerful idea. All right. Well, Rachel, thank you. Thank you for talking to me this week. I appreciated the time. Thanks, Scott. <laughs>